As you're aware, hopefully, um, we're working through a series on the seven mysteries of the gospel that Paul talks about, and today we're going to be, it's the sixth one in our series, there's no particular order, but this is just the one I got to, on, and this is the sixth time, um, is uh, Israel's salvation, the mystery of Israel's salvation. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jeremiah do an excellent job of covering this mystery just a couple months ago when we first started this thing? And the answer is yes, he did. And if you didn't hear that, you should go back. You can find the teaching online at uh, rockmelbourne.com. You should listen to that. Uh, but I'm going to do it again <clears throat> for a couple reasons. First, uh, I want to tie it to the mystery we just talked about, the one new man, and the mystery we're going to talk about uh, next time we talk. I, I, so I want to put it between those two to time together. And also, uh, while I will, uh, the things he covered really thoroughly in Romans 11, and you should, by the way, be opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, that's where we're going to be. Uh, I'll just review those things quickly, but uh, I want to go a little bit beyond that. There'll be some other things I highlight there, but I want to actually get to more of an emphasis on our part in this. What part do we have to play in Israel's salvation? And that is at the, more at the end of Romans 11, getting into Romans 12. So it'll still be some new stuff. Uh, so you can add new stuff to Jeremy's stuff, and uh, there's still more stuff in the Bible. You could just keep studying this. Amen? <clears throat> All right. So let's jump in. Now, what you will find is Romans 11 is all about, is Paul all talking about Israel, but he doesn't start in Romans 11. He actually starts in Romans 9, and he's talking about Israel all the way through Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, and I believe uh, the first part of the way into Romans 12, which is the part I want to make sure we understand in context of the things that have come before it. Uh, the Romans 12, 1 uh, begins with, therefore, brethren. What's the therefore, therefore? The, the things that the therefore were before the therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, the therefore is because of the things that were before the therefore. Right? So the before the therefore was Romans 11. So we want to tie that into our understanding of Romans 12. So let's look at this. Now, I'm just going to hit a couple verses in Romans 9 to lay a foundation. So we're going to start with Romans 9, verses 4 and 5 where he's talking about Israelites, who are Israelites. So the nation of Israel has things that pertain to them. In other words, these things are exclusive to the nation of Israel. They come from or through or to the nation of Israel. And there's a list here of, I believe it's one, two, three, I don't know, it's several things. Uh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption? It is through Israel the whole concept of the adoption as sons and daughters of God comes. The glory, the glory of God manifests on the earth through Israel. The covenants, all the covenants come through Israel. We don't just get the covenant without all that went before. The giving of the law, the law was given to Moses through Israel, right? The service of God, serving God, the whole concept of serving God we learn through Israel, especially through the priests. And the promises, there are lots of promises in the Bible. 
Uh, I think Joe just pointed out at our prayer meeting on Tuesday that uh, he, he noticed all the guys that wrote the Bible are Jews. Did you notice that? The promises, all the promises came through Israel. Of whom are the fathers, uh, the, all of our patriarchs, all the guys we like to look at and emulate, Abraham and King David and guys like that. All Israel, and whom according to the flesh Christ came, who was overall in the eternity plus God. Christ came through Israel. He's a Jew from the line of Israel, right? So uh, this is important um, that we understand this. And remember last week when we were talking about one new man, we were in Ephesians chapter 2, and in verse 12, Paul says to the Gentiles, hey, remember, you were without God in the earth without hope. You were aliens. Uh, you were far off. You were strangers to the covenant and the promises, right? So this is what he's talking about. All these things came through Israel and nowhere else. So you guys were strangers to all those things. And then he goes on to tell them, but now through faith, you're not. So uh, again, I want you to think of this contrast as we're going through the importance of Israel that we're going to get to in Romans 11. Uh, the other thing we see is this. What is the difference now between us in Israel. And he covers this in verse 30 through 33. And it's the understanding of these two things that lead to the things he says in chapter 11. He says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, we didn't even know, right? I mean, the pre-Jesus Gentiles, like, we well, don't know. He's winging it. They, they were without hope, without God and without hope in the earth, right? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. We all of a sudden found out we could be made righteous just by putting faith in Jesus, and that was a good deal, and we jumped right on that, right? Okay, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness. Now, you know, we can look down on the law and uh, all that good stuff, but the law did show us how to be righteous. The law was all about righteousness. It was the law of righteousness. Um, it just was real hard to do. Uh, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why, Paul says? I'm glad you asked. Pursuing the law of righteousness, I'm sorry, uh, why? Because they did not seek it by faith. They didn't add faith to it. Um, but as it were, by the works of the law. So they thought that righteousness had come from the works of the law. They didn't understand the purpose of the law. And here's where we found out they didn't understand going on. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? Jesus, the rock of offense. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. So it says salvation has always been by faith, but... They stumbled over Jesus where we didn't, even though we didn't have the law. We were far off. They were near. They were pursuing righteousness through the law. They just thought they could be righteous by the works of the law, and they missed the whole point. Uh, Paul makes this super clear in, the, in Galatians chapter 3. I uh, gave you a couple of references there. You can go look them up. It's in your notes. Uh, he says first that Abraham was justified by faith, not by the works of the law. It was, uh, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness, right? 
And then so he says, well, what's the purpose of the law? And he goes through, and at the end of the chapter, he says, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Once we are justified by faith, there is no longer a need for the law. In other words, the law was to show us righteousness and our need for justification so that when Jesus came, so then the rock came, we could be justified by faith. It's really that simple. They missed that. They stuck with the law, not the Jesus who could justify them. So you understand what's going on. So let's jump ahead now to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to jump in at verse 11 and pretty much go through the rest of the chapter, except for I'm going to skip the last couple of verses. All right, so in verse 11 and 12, Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled? What did they stumble over? Jesus, the rock of offense. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Part of the reason salvation came to the Gentiles is to provoke God to jealousy. I'm sorry, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Uh, you know, hey, why do they got what we're supposed to have, right? Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure Riches for the Gentiles. You understand what he's saying there? Because they fell, uh, the Gentiles get to have the gospel. We get Jesus. We can be saved. It's riches. How many of you have experienced the riches that are in Christ? Awesome. All right. Um, he goes on in verse 12. How much more their fullness. Something in the future for Israel. He's talking about Israel's fullness. Right? So, this, so there's two points I want to get out of that. First is... Uh, that Israel's rejection of Christ is salvation to the Gentiles, right? So this is awesome for us. And it is to provoke them to jealousy, at least in part. I think he just wanted to save us all the time anyway, uh, and he wanted Israel to help with that. We'll talk about that more next time. Uh, but we're to provoke to jealousy Israel so that they'll be saved. Now, we actually see this laid out very plainly in Matthew chapter 21. I'm not going to read it for you. The reference is there. You can go look at it. I'll tell you the story. It's a parable of the vine dressers. And Jesus says, hey, this guy had this vineyard, and he leased it out to some people. And then he would send somebody to go get the fruit, and they'd go, the, the vine dressers would go, screw that, beat the guy up and send him back. And he kept sending people, and some they beat up, some they killed. And finally, they, he sent his son. He said, they'll respect my son. This is the parable Jesus is telling. And the vine dresser said, uh, this is the son. If we kill him, the vineyard's ours, right? So they kill the son. And then Jesus looks right at the Pharisees. He's talking to the Pharisees in this parable. And he goes, he goes what do you think that master will do? And they said, uh, oh, he's going to come and whoop them vine dressers. They've had it. And then he looks right at the Pharisees and said, have you not read the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Very verse. And he says, again, he's looking right at the Pharisees. He says, therefore, the kingdom of God is taken from you and given to another nation that will bear fruit. That's us, right? A new ethnos that will bear fruit. We'll talk a lot more about that next time. But my point is this, he looked right at the Pharisees and said this, and the Jews knew they were talking about it. It says in there, he knew they were talking about them, and it torqued them off, all right? So it's very clear this is why this happened. They rejected the son, 
And so he's going to take the kingdom and give the expression of the kingdom to another nation, this holy ethnos called the church. Amen? Now, here's the other thing I want you to see. He says, if their fall is riches for us, their coming back is, uh, he goes, well, he says this way. He says, if their fall is richness, how much more their fullness? How much more when they come back? How much more when Israel is experiencing the fullness of God? How much more of a blessing will that be to us? So I want you to see that there are greater riches for us in Israel's future fullness. This is not just about Israel being blessed. This is for us. There's When they get saved and come into their fullness, Paul's going, can you imagine what that means for the Gentiles? We're going to get something out of that. I'm going to talk about that more as we go on. There is greater riches for the entire earth in Israel experiencing their fullness. Got it? You feeling like we have a part in this? Are you feeling more invested now? I'm like, yeah, Israel, get with it. I want some of that. That's why we're praying. All right, so let's jump to verse 15. Uh, Jeremiah covered this really thoroughly and really well. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be from but life from the dead? So if uh, them being cast away gave us reconciliation, what's going to happen when they're accepting Christ? Well, life from the dead, resurrection life. We talk about resurrection life a lot. We just talked about it on Easter Sunday, right? So it's going to be some kind of resurrection life, some kind of glory, I believe, that we have maybe not experienced yet. Uh, I'm going to call it fullness because that's what Paul called it in verse 12. Resurrection life, Israel's, Israel's fullness. I believe that there's a glory that will come on Israel, and, a, and through Israel, there will be a glory that will come on us that even the church hasn't fully experienced yet. Now, I would like to make my case using the Bible. If that's okay. Um, if we jump back to Romans chapter 1 and 2, same book, uh, there is a principle, what I'm going to call the Israel first principle. Paul, three times in Romans chapter 1 and 2, says, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. So, three times, I'm going to call it a principle. Now, in each of those times, the first time, he's talking about salvation, the second, or the gospel, the second time he's talking about judgment, and the third time he's talking about glory. Now, on the first one, uh, we see that in verse 11. Uh, they were offered salvation. They didn't take it. Now it's to the Gentiles. And we see that on the day of Pentecost. Uh, first, the salvation first came where? Jerusalem, the Jews. The entire early church was Jewish. They didn't even know, we talked about that last week. They didn't know non-Jews could be saved until Jesus poured out his spirit on some of them. So the, the gospel came first to the Jews. Uh, when Paul, you ever notice when Paul would go out and preach? He preached all the world. He preached a lot in the Greek cities in Asia Minor like, and, and in Greece, Ephesus, Corinth, places like that. What did he always do? Where's the first place he always went? Synagogue. He went to the synagogue, and if they rejected him and the stone of stumbling, then he would say, 
All right, you had your shot, and he'd move on to the Gentiles. He always started with the synagogue, didn't he? Principle, to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Happens again in Romans 2.9 in judgment, Romans 2.10 in glory. So let's talk about the glory part. What is this glory that's going to come first to the Jew, then to the Gentile? So I want to look at where uh, mostly Isaiah, talk, actually exclusively Isaiah, talks about this. Isaiah 60 uh, the entire chapter is about Israel becoming the lead nation in the earth. Did you know that was going to happen? Now, in Isaiah 60, I love verses 1 through 3. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Now, we like to pray that verse, and that's okay uh, because we've been grafted in, so we, can, we have all those promises, but let's understand this is specifically speaking of Israel, and it's actually spe speaking of a specific time in Israel's future. This is a prophecy to Israel, but we're going to go ahead and claim the glory of God in darkness as well, okay? So he says, arise, shine, your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise on you, and his glory will be seen on you. And it says, and the nations, verse 3, will come to the brightness of your shining. Very simply, there is going to be a glory. Where am I at? No, oh, yeah. Uh, there's going to be a glory on Israel in the midst of a dark earth. I think this puts it near the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of tribulation, that three-and-a-half-year period. There's going to be a glory on Israel in the midst of a dark earth that will draw the nations to Israel. The nations will come to the brightness of your shining. You see it? There's going to be something helpful there for all the earth. Okay. Now, I'm kind of excited about this glory. I want to do this. Um, what does this... Oh, i got to turn to this in my Bible. Sorry. I didn't have it set up. In Isaiah chapter 4, there's something super interesting uh, that's just so wild uh, hardly, I've hardly met anyone who's noticed this in the Bible, even though I bet we've all read it, uh, just because it's, it's too mind-blowing. You just go, I don't know what to do with this. All right. Do you guys remember, we're talking about this glory, you remember when they came out of Egypt and they wandered around the desert? How'd they know where to go? Uh, yep, there we go. There was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And if it moved, they moved. They just kept putting the tabernacle up underneath the presence of God, right? How many of you, uh, I mean, that's pretty dramatic, a, a pillar of fire and smoke uh, or cloud all the time, day and night. Isn't that pretty dramatic? How many of you would like one over your house? How many of you have any real expectation of that? All right, let me read you this passage. This is clearly set in the... In, uh, the time of the restoration of Israel. It says, in that day, Isaiah 4, I'm going to read you 2 through, uh, what am I, 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that's Jesus, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing. Well, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? For those of Israel who have escaped. So this is after that difficult time. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. 
when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Remember one of those things, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, was judgment. The spirit of judgment, the spirit of burning is going to purge Israel. That's, there's a purpose in all the last days Armageddon-y stuff. All right. Uh, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge, and for a shelter from storm and rain. How many of you, when you picture uh, Israel in the restoration, picture little pillars of flame and, and smoke over all the houses? Yeah. It's right there. It's in the Bible. Isn't that wild? We have not even imagined, I think, the glory that God has for us, even in the earth, uh, that he's going to put on Israel. And uh, I, I just wanted you to see this. We're not just talking about, oh, yeah, they're going to be happy. Uh, we're talking about the glory of God. Um, so uh, I, I kind of want to put a degree to what it means when Israel enters into their fullness, this resurrection life from the dead thing. So pretty cool. Uh, if we keep reading in Isaiah 60, in 11 and 12, the whole chapter is about them being the lead nation, but 11 and 12 are very specific. It says the wealth of the nations will be brought to Israel, and it says uh, that every nation will serve Israel. It says the nation that does not serve Israel will perish from the earth. I don't, mean, I don't know if that means he kills all the people or if you're just not a nation anymore, but if you don't serve Israel, you don't get to be a nation. All right, the nation that will not serve Israel will perish from the earth. We got to see that God isn't just going to restore Israel. He's going to restore Israel to the place of preeminence that he originally designed for them as the preeminent nation in the earth, right? With the glory of God resting over houses and gathering places. It sounds like it might be a fun place to visit. All right, incidentally, we're praying in the Isaiah 62 fast uh, specifically Isaiah 62, 7, right? Uh, I've set watchmen on the wall, give me no rest until when? Until I make Israel a praise in the earth. I want you to understand something. The nations bringing their wealth to Israel and having to serve Israel is not going to be a weighty obligation. The nations aren't going to grudgingly go, oh, oh we got to go to Israel this year. It's going to be like your 12-year-old being told they have to go to Disneyland. Yep, we have to go. Every year. You're with me. It's going to be better than Disneyland, guys. They're a praise in the earth. You get it? God's going to make Israel a praise in the earth. The earth is going to go, oh, we are so happy that Israel has gotten saved and the glory of God's there. It is a blessing to the entire planet. Are you getting this? So this is why... We pray. All right, let's keep going. Verses 16 through 24, a couple quick things. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump also is holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, that you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, 
do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Ha ha. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and, if, and you stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Uh, so watch out for that unbelief thing. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Right? So, quick summation, the Gentiles were grafted into Israel's new covenant. Now, let me change that emphasis. The Gentiles were grafted into Israel's new covenant. God did not make a new and separate covenant for the Gentiles. The term new covenant, uh, we see it about a dozen times in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you see it once in Jeremiah, but it's the first time we see the term. He says, I will make a, this is the new covenant that I will make with Israel, not the earth, Israel. This is the new covenant that I will make with Israel. And then it, he perfectly describes the new covenant that we experience in the New Testament, right? So I want you to see this covenant is Israel's covenant. We were grafted into their covenant. We didn't get a new covenant just for us. You understand it? I'm, it's important that you understand because uh, I'm not just splitting hairs here. It's Israel's covenant. It's always been Israel's covenant. Jeremiah established that when he prophesied it. We were grafted into Israel's covenant. And so what that means is the law, as we just saw in Romans 9, is gone. Once we come to faith, once we've come to righteousness by faith, there's no longer need of the law, Galatians 3. So the law is gone. Is the old covenant gone? Ah. In Genesis 17, 7, God says that he will make with Israel an everlasting covenant. What does everlasting mean? Is it gone? No, it clearly is not. The old covenant isn't gone. It's just been upgraded to the new covenant. What that means, even though the law is gone, the old covenant is in play, which means the promises of the old covenant are in play. One of those promises is the land. Guess who's going to live in the land after Jesus comes? Yeah, you want to see how it's going to be divided? Go look in Ezekiel. It's strips now instead of all these patches. But Israel's going to live in the land when he comes back. It's still their land. He promised. That promise is still in play. That covenant is still in play. And it'll be a fun place to visit because there'll be a lot of pillars of fire and smoke. Um, so, the second thing that we saw there is Israel can be grafted back in. Israel can be saved. Jews can be saved. They can be grafted back in. Now, let's keep reading. Now we're getting to the, the good part, the mystery, verses 25 through 27. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. So Paul says, it's a mystery, but you've got to know about it, because we can know about it now. 
It's important that you know this because you have a part to play in this. All right? I desire, brethren, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. We're going to get back to that. Wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So a little blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. I don't think that means every single Jew ever will be saved. I think it means the nation will be saved. He's talking about a nation of sal national salvation. The nation of Israel will be saved. So certainly most of them. Uh, and so all Israel will be saved. It is written, the, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's the same covenant, right? And so we see that the mystery is the national salvation of Israel. That the nation of Israel will be saved. I think this happens. Now, this I'm saying I think, because you can argue with me on this one. That's okay. You get your Bible out, believe something different. I think this happens, or this is described in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where he's talking about Israel, and he says, they will look on the one they've pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. I think that's them realizing, ooh, he's the guy. We blew this. Uh, we're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord now, right? Uh, a parallel verse is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, where it's actually describing Jesus' coming, and, it, and he says, and, and every eye will see me, even those who pierced me. And so I think this is tied in the range of Jesus' coming, in that end time range, all right? I mean, that's as much as I'm going to go with on that, uh, but let's move on. It says that there's been a partial blindness on Israel, where they can read the scriptures, the things that we go, it's right there, Isaiah 53, and they don't get it. There's a partial blindness, or as 1 Corinthians calls it, a veil. It says that there's a veil when they read Moses, but in Christ the veil is taken away. So as, as they get a revelation of Jesus, which is, we have part of our job is to help them do that, uh, the veil is taken away, the scriptures are opened up, they begin to understand their heritage, okay? Now, uh, this is also important. It says there's partial blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles, right? Now, this is, again, I'm stating my opinion. I, I, it's from scripture. I think I've got good foundation on this. Uh, you can disagree. You don't even have to send me an email. But I don't think he's talking about numbers here. I don't think he's talking about amount. I don't think God essentially said, all right, they rejected me. We're going to close down this line. No Jews can be saved. Over here, we're opening this line. Only Gentiles can be saved. I got a number in mind. When we hit that number, I'll open that line back up. I don't think that's what he's doing. Because Jews are still being saved, aren't they? He's not talking about the number uh, that uh, the time of the Gentiles being the number or until the full number of Gentiles are saved. He's talking about the church maturing. He's saying until the church is walking in fullness, which we've been talking about in the past, right? Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying that uh, they're going to be blinded from their national salvation until such a time as the church matures and is expressing the fullness of God. 
which requires all the things we've talked about in the past, the love, the unity, all that, all that stuff. So part of that is what's going to end this time and open it up for them to see. That's part of the provocation. That's what I really believe, that, uh, that what our part to play in this is to experience fullness so that we're a provocation uh, to Israel. We aren't quite there yet, are we? No. And by fullness, uh, we've taught this in the past, so I know most of you remember, but by fullness, I'm talking about where we're, we're one body, we're coming together. We're a temple being built together as a t dwelling place of God and the Spirit. We're in unity. We're speaking the same things. We're speaking the truth and love to one another. All the stuff that we see in Ephesians 4, right? That is somehow going to be a provocation to Israel. Now, he gives us two warnings. In verse 20, we already read that. He said, don't be haughty just because branches were cut off and you were grafted in. Now, there, it's not, I'm, I'm going to hit this quickly because it's not as big a deal. Replacement theology used to be a big deal. It's not as much now, but replacement theology essentially says all the promises of Abraham were transferred to the church and Israel's screwed. They're out of it, right? Um, if you believe that, you need to stop because uh, it's a lie. Uh, Paul says right here, verse 19 literally describes replacement theology. You say branches were cut off and I may be grafted in. Uh, Paul says, don't be haughty in the very next verse. So uh, let's just take care of that. Just because we were grafted in, don't get cocky, right? And uh, understand that we share the promises. The promises did not transfer to us. They are still Israel's promises. We just get to share in them now, all right? So enough about that. Uh, the second thing he says going on is uh, basically to not adopt human wisdom. Let me find where I want to talk about this. Uh, oh, yeah, that you should not be wise in your own opinion. Well, here's what I think about Israel. Well, who cares what you think about Israel? Let's read what God thinks about Israel. How's that? Right? Because some stuff will come up. Everybody's got opinions. God says, don't be wise in your opinion. Get my opinion. Get my wisdom. So there's two things I think we got to watch in this. One is arrogance. Uh, well, we're saved. They're not. They're too stupid to figure out the scriptures. Uh, you know, I'll, I mean, I'll be happy to preach the gospel to them, but if they don't get it, I'm moving on. No. That's why we're praying for three weeks for Israel, because we have a part in their salvation. And our maturity as a church has a part in their salvation, right? And so the second thing is just indifference. Uh, you know, I got mine. They can get theirs, right? And so we don't see that we have a part to play, and we, we aren't involved, and so we just don't worry about them. And so God says, uh, I want you uh, not to be wise in your own opinion. I want you to get my, own, my opinion because you have a part to play in this. And as I've been pointing out all along, there's a benefit to you in their salvation. Remember, life from the dead, fullness, all that stuff, right? So, going on, verses 28 and 29 is interesting. He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, you go to Israel, find a real Orthodox Jew with the, uh, what do you, Jerry, what do you call the sideburn things? I've forgotten. Cool sideburns. We'll go with that. Okay. And, and they're dressed in black and they wear it. Now, if, you, if you're a woman, if you touch them, 
they will be deeply offended and, and say mean things to you. I, I dare you, pick one of them out and try and tell them about Jesus. They will hurt you. And then they will put you in jail. Enemies for the sake of the gospel. You understand? That's today, right now. You go in Jerusalem do that today, that'll happen. All right? But let's keep reading. Uh, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, the promises, the future salvation of the nation of Israel, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. David and Abraham and all those guys go, oh, I love Israel. Jesus, he was Jewish, remember? I love Israel. They're beloved. So what I find interesting in this passage, oh, and I'm sorry, in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We like to use that passage about spiritual gifts, which is fine, but he's not talking about spiritual gifts in this section. He's talking about uh, the election of Israel. That's irrevocable. That's on, right? And so they are uh, irrevocably called as a nation to salvation. It's going to happen. It's not questionable. We just don't know when. So that's why we're praying. And until then, they are our beloved enemies. Now let me explain what I think that means. Let's say, let me uh, say you could go back in time to uh, a couple years after the day of Pentecost. Early church, stuff's going on, and uh, you're in Jerusalem, and you're having a good time, and you meet this guy named Saul who is a Pharisee, and you know who's, and you guys know who Saul becomes? Paul, right, you know that, all right, in our time travel scenario here, you've already, you know, do you want to hang out with him? You want to have lunch with him? Want to pick his brain? Absolutely. Do you love him? Even though he's going off to arrest and kill Christians as soon as you guys are done with lunch? See, he's an enemy of the gospel, but you know he's irrevocably called by God and beloved. Guys, that's a picture of Israel right now. They're just Saul's waiting for a Damascus experience to become Paul's. We know it's going to happen, and so we love them. They're in the family. They want to persecute us. We go, I get it. I know we're enemies, but you know what, you're giving me the family, we're going to get along, it's going to be okay, I'm just going to love you now anyway. You see, this attitude, well, pardon me, attitude that Paul is trying to convey here. Now, here comes the really, really, really important part, believe it or not, verses 30 through 33. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet had now have obtained mercy, mercy, just keep that in your mind, um, through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been, been disobedient that the mercy, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Part of our provoking them to jealousy is our grasping mercy so we can model mercy in front of them so that they can obtain mercy. Make them, provoke them to jealousy for mercy. All right? Uh, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. 
God delights in showing mercy. So for him, this is a perfect scenario. I'm just going to take as many disobedient people as I could find, which is everyone in the earth, and show them mercy. Try and set them up for mercy. And then listen to this statement, verse 33. Paul just flips out. He just has to start worshiping here. He goes Pentecostal. He goes, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul's going, this is awesome. I'm just, I'm, it's mercy that's going to get him. It's mercy that's going to get him. This is incredible. God is so smart, I would have never figured that out. All his wisdom is amazing. You get what Paul's saying here. In Isaiah 55, I love this passage. You guys probably love this passage. Verses 8 and 9, Paul, uh, Isaiah says of God, uh, or for God, uh, for my ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? Now, in general, that's true, but he was being specific. That's verse 8 and 9. You know what verse 7 is talking about? Guess. Mercy. He's talking about his desire to show mercy. And then he goes, my thoughts and my ways are so much higher than you. They're grounded in mercy. You don't get me. Isaiah, tell Israel, you don't get me. My thoughts and my ways are about mercy. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Verse 7 is very clearly about mercy. So God, through Paul, is telling us that our part in some way is learning the wisdom of God's mercy so that we are a witness in the earth to Israel. I think it will work for non-Jews as well, but certainly to Israel. Is this making sense to you? Okay, now let's jump to Romans chapter 12 to another very familiar passage. And again, I think we can apply this generally. We need to be, our, our minds renewed by the Word of God in every area we can get it. But I want you to see that it's specific. Remember, the therefore is there for the before the therefore, right? You, we just were reading the before was the mercy of God and how it's God's wisdom and how His ways are higher than our ways. And, and Paul says, oh, the ways of God are so past finding out, Right? His mercy is going to work way better than the plan we had. So, we read, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, right? By the mercies of God, by grasping a revelation of God's mercy that you can see in the mercy He's shown us and in the mercy He's going to show Israel. And you can start applying that mercy forward ahead of time, knowing Israel's end. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is only a reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world. How's the world do with mercy? Not so good. They're still really into the Old Testament eye for an eye thing. Or maybe two eyes for one eye. Right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and perfect will of God. Okay, let me break this down for you. When he says, 
be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I think he's talking about, in context, our minds being renewed in understanding the wisdom of the mercy of God. When he says, don't be conformed to the world, but renew your mind, he's talking about learn mercy from me. Do it my way, not the world's way. I think that's the context of this passage. All right? So, he's essentially saying, if you will learn to have mercy like I have mercy, it will be transformational. You will be transformed if you can learn this. You up for that? Is this making sense? All right, you're following my trail. I don't want anybody falling off a cliff along the way. All right. Now, he says that uh, we do this by being a living sacrifice. There may be some sacrifice involved in showing mercy, right, in learning mercy. But we just offer ourselves as a sacrifice. It's only reasonable. And we show mercy. Um, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And if we do that, it says we will prove His good, acceptable, and perfect will in the earth. All right? So what's going on, I believe, remember I talked about fullness uh, being uh, all the things we saw in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, coming together in unity, growing up in the head who is Christ, in whom all the fullness dwells, all that stuff. And when we talk about glory, remember when God, when Moses said, show me your glory, God did, and he passed before him, and he talked about his goodness and his mercy and his forgiveness. That's the glory, right? So, remember also, we were talking about the time of the Gentiles being until the fullness of the Gentiles, or the time that Israel was blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles. And that wasn't numbers, that was maturity. All that to say, I think what God's saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2, is that the Gentiles modeling the fullness, the glory, the mercy and love of God is what's going to be, and I'm convinced of this, the provocation to Israel. That we are modeling, that we're proving the good and acceptable and perfect will of God by having our minds renewed on the mercy of God and being transformed, and it changes the way we act, and they see it. They see us as one. They see us as mature. They see all the things in Ephesians 4 that we're growing up to. Does this make sense to you? Because I know I'm pulling some concepts together, but to me it seems a very clear trail. Now, I'll also say this. If us, if the church learning to model God's fullness, His mercy and love, is a provocation of the Gentiles, we know that in the last days there will be tribulation. And do you know who the targets of those tribulation will be? The church and Israel. How much more will we stand out as a proof of God's will if we're able to, to model uh, His fullness while we're suffering with them. That while Israel's being persecuted, we go, yeah, we're going to stand with you. We're in this together, bro. We're going to suffer too. Because truth is important and, uh, you know, we're dying uh, right along with you. They don't like us either. Might be God's plan. Just saying. Now, I'm going to finish up uh, verses 3 through 5. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to tell you what he talks about. He, he goes from 
all of this, which I think tracks, the very next topic for Paul, where I, th- I still think he's, I think he's segueing here from focusing on Israel to beginning to focus on the church, but if he's segueing, focusing on the church in light of how the church provokes Israel, the very next thing he starts talking about is how they're one body, unity. He goes from this to talking about unity, how you're one body, how you're one body and we build each other up and we have separate gifts, but we're, but we're one body and we're not separated. And it makes me think uh, of what we talked about last week and really just the term unity. Uh, unity, we know from Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4 it talks about the end of Ephesians 4 is us being filled with all the fullness of God, which is in the head, which we get to by being connected to the head and to one another, by speaking the truth in love, by unity, right? So a prerequisite to the fullness of God is the unity of the church. Got it? Paul goes right from this into talking about one body. In other words, uh, last week we talked about one new man, how we can't get our identities in anything in earth before our identity in Christ, that he literally made us a new ethnos, that we are uh, a new uh, ethnos in Christ, that our identity is totally there, that we are one new man, Jew and Gentile, uh, when Jews get saved, one new man. And so, I believe that this one new man understanding will be how the church provokes Israel, like Paul was talking about the salvation. It's that beloved enemy thing. Uh, hey, there's a, there's a holy nation thing going on where we're all a different ethnos. And the Jews go, yeah, but I don't believe in your Jesus. And we go, yeah, I know, but you will. Uh, your family, we love you. I know it bugs you when I say that, but... Uh, but we're one new man. You're, you're us. We're you. We're in this together. Even if we go through tribulation, we're in this together. I think the church has to grasp how important unity is, how important understanding this one new man thing is, because it's part of our witness to Israel to provoke them to jealousy. And it's part of uh, the church in the end times uh, that God has prepared, that is, remember we talked about the bridal paradigm, that is spotless and prepared and witnessing the glory of God, His mercy, His love, all those things. Maybe some of the things we've focused on aren't near as important as just learning how to love one another and be one and model, uh, hey, I get it. I understand the one new man thing. We're part of each other. We're family. Does this make sense? Yeah, uh, I think, uh, again, I think it just makes sense. Does this give you a better heart for Israel? Do you see how our future is tied up with their future? Do you see our part in their future? Do you see their part in our past? And everything we have was the things that belonged to them. That good? All right, good. I feel like we get it. So let's do this. Jer, um, come up. Uh, you, can, you can bring whoever you want. If the whole band's great, if it's just you and the guitar, let's just make some noise. 
if you're up for that. So here's what I want to do. We got about 10 minutes. We're just going to engage God a little bit uh, with this focus. I would like to just focus on the mercy of God. That was the whole point of this teaching, that we go, that we, <laughs> I want the revelation Paul had where he's flipping out going, oh, the wisdom of God and his mercy. Oh my God, that's brilliant. I want to get that. I want to pray for the church to get that. That we don't see mercy as a, as a repugnant obligation. I'd really like to see you get yours, buddy. But I got to show you mercy. You got off. Just want you to know, I'm watching. Jesus delights in showing mercy. Jesus delights in showing mercy. God, somehow communicate to the church the delight, the wisdom of mercy. We don't get it. Lord, pray. Give us revelation of Jesus who delighted in mercy. Lord, make mercy, make showing mercy our delight. Lord, help us to see the wisdom in doing it your way. Lord, help us to grow up into your higher thoughts and ways. <laughs> oh, Jesus, mercy, 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 mercy. Thank you so much for showing us mercy. Thank you so much for the incredible picture of the mercy you're going to show rebellious Israel. Lord, we were no less rebellious. We just got to skip the law. 